Welcome to Communication on Point. I'm your host, Dean Hefta. This program is designed to bring you perspectives and conversations that can help you as a leader grow your influence and increase your impact. Today, I'm excited to welcome Paul Becker. Paul is a retired Rear Admiral of the U.S. Navy, and the work that he's done in the Navy and in the private sector is far-reaching and certainly fascinating. He brings a perspective from the security and intelligence side of the military to the leadership and budgetary world of business and in his own work as a leadership trainer and teacher. I'm excited to share with you this conversation that Paul and I had where we dive into wide-ranging topics about what does it mean to lead and the elements that are required for us to bring that leadership effectively to life so that we can increase performance, maximize productivity, and make sure that we have profit in the enterprise that we're a part of. I'm excited to share this with you, and without further ado, let's get started. Well, Paul Becker, I am honored to have you on Communication on Point. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. You know, you're extensive leadership, especially in the military. You've seen every aspect of the world and very, very many different aspects of the Navy and our entire intelligence community. And certainly the theme that runs through the whole thing is leadership. I know you are a coach and a consultant and you teach leadership, but that's a word that gets tossed around in so many different ways. And where I want to start our conversation is getting your insights on what is the core of leadership? When we find ourselves in those positions to lead, what's at the essence of that? I think there are three things, and it's hard. There's a process. It's not an individual act. It's influence with others as opposed to simply telling them what to do. And it's an objective. Does everyone understand what it is? And how do we get there? That's the three core elements. You know, there's a competence, there's a candor, and there's a character associated with individual leaders on how they achieve it. And I also think of a classic physics vector. It has to have both an energy and a direction. And if you put that all together, Right? That's a long answer for leadership, but it starts with it's a process, it's influence, and it's an objective. So from your experience, whether it's working with new leaders, young leaders, or what you've dealt with in you know, dealing with multi-billion dollar budgets, when you talk about the process, what's an example or what are the elements when you think about the process of leadership? It's first identifying what needs to be done? This is a core question for any influencer, any leader in an organization. It's not what you're best at doing. If you're a real tech wizard, but you're now the chief information systems officer at a company, your strength may be working the wires and the keyboards, but that may not be what needs to be done, right? So there's a process of determining what's important and prioritizing. Part of the process is understanding what's the end state. 
So what needs to be achieved? Part of the process is change. Right? If the organization just wanted everything to maintain the same steady course, they frankly don't need a leader. They need a manager, right? A manager can balance books, right? But if you're looking to expand your client base, grow your profits, uh, and widen the scope of work that you do, that's change, right? Leaders are there to help guide change. And they could do it with great force or small force. That's the back to the vector uh, analysis. But they need to provide a vision and a direction for that to occur. So I, I blend that all into the process of leadership. So when you think about that, I like the the highlighting that we have to have a, a, a direction. We, we have to have the energy, that that objective of where we're going, because that helps us to understand the the uncertainty maybe of our journey that if we have a destination you've spent a lot of time on ships right and and, and that's a great analogy right we got to know where we are going so that we can orient our energy we can have some expectations we can know what we need for our journey along the way and then you touched on this this um how do we influence amidst all that change and I'm curious in your career, you know, there's, there's heavy influence, there's light influence. What are some of the biggest changes that you've observed that the, uh, whether it's the industry, the general style, the military, your, all of your experience rolled together. What are some of the major changes occurring in how the best leaders are approaching influence? I see it as a, a triangle. And I label each side of the triangle as teamwork, tone, tenacity, or the three T's. Uh, it's the name of my consulting group, the Becker T3 group. These are the core characteristics I saw that were exercised in the military that brought about successful performance and often change. They equate to the private sector as well in that they can deliver performance, productivity, and profit. But in order to bring about change, it may not be the same shape triangle for every organization or even elements within that organization. Right? Ideally, you'd like an equilateral triangle of those three characteristics that make organizations great. But in some organizations, uh, they may be long on teamwork, everyone gets along, but there's a vicious atmosphere and people don't like, uh, you know, people don't work to the greatest effect. Or they may not try very hard, right? It's just the culture of the organization that people come in late, leave early, and they may be losing market share. Or in the private sector, they may be losing a combat readiness edge uh, if they're in uniform. So a leader has to assess what needs to be done here. Do we need to work on improving our teamwork? Do I need to improve on improving the command climate, as we'd say in uniform, or the culture and the atmosphere of the workplace? Or do we need not necessarily to try harder, right? That's not necessarily a, 
always a good thing, right? The, the beatings will continue until morale improves around here. No, trying harder is not tenacity. It's more than endurance, right? You've driven your car around greater Chicago a lot of your life. That's endurance. Tenacity is understanding what the end state is and persevering with a purpose to get there. It's trying hard with prudent risk-taking. It's trying hard with innovation and accepting failure, right? Famous uh, Navy Admiral Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear Navy was fond of saying that success teaches nothing, only failure teaches. I like the quote, right? And uh, while I don't advocate trying to fail often, when you do, right, if you've taken prudent risks to that point, right, it's not catastrophic and you go for something else. Characteristic of a leader is that they accept the risk on behalf of their subordinates. That's a really important principle. And I share this with a lot of C-suites uh, and in my coaching practice as well, Dean. It's uh, the senior who says, go out and try this. And if it doesn't work, I'll take the blame, right? If you're a junior, you like to hear that. Not that you're gonna take wild unsubstantiated risk, but you know that someone's got your back. And if you're the senior, your people are gonna be overly risk averse if you don't let them know you have their back. So I think they'll be less innovative, right? And less willing to go out on a limb and try something new and exciting for the company, right? So you have to buy that risk from them and take, take the heat if everything doesn't go right. So if you want a lot out of them in the practice of teamwork, then you need to also give them a lot of leeway so they can maneuver and know that they're covered. So I'm, I'm gonna to wanna to spend some time here because I, I believe this is a very crucial topic for teams and leaders to understand when it comes to how we communicate with each other, this whole failure aspect. Because when we look back over our lives, it's those things, just what you what you said, it's, it's the things where they didn't go the way we expected that stick with us and are the most formative for us. And often we forget about those things that were easy. And yeah, we, we were successful, we won the award or whatever, but it, it didn't stick with us because in, there wasn't a lot of lessons there. What do you learn when things go right? Oh, just keep doing what you're doing. And when you think about failure, when you said that, I, I would imagine that as a leader, you classify failure in different ways. There's failure because somebody was careless and didn't follow the protocol and didn't fulfill their responsibility. And that's probably not a failure that we have a lot of appetite for. And then there's the failure because we were trying something new and unproven. We had done everything we could in preparation. We just didn't get the results that we expected. And I think of those as very different kinds of failure. As a leader, how do we, how do we help facilitate our teams learning in that failure, the communication responsibility that we have to pull those lessons out? What, what do you do when you're in the middle or at the end of what became realized as a failure? Yeah, before the event, I'd say we start with a best practice of wide, flat, open, 
inclusive communication. It's not a few people in a small group saying, here's the plan, go out, everyone has their piece, tell them what to do and execute. This facilitates cylinders of excellence where person number five may not know what person number two is up to. So I like inclusive planning. And that may mean wide email distribution groups. It may mean big uh, settings where everyone, stand, everyone understands the overarching objective. And then this way, when they're given a little piece of it, person number five can only do so much. They can't do person number two's task also. But if they understand what person number two is doing, it may modify their activities as person number five, so they come together. So that's beforehand. And then after, and the military is particularly good at this, uh, conduct an immediate after action review, AARs, we call them in uniform. That's specifically what uh, the Army and Marine uh, call them. Aviators typically call it a post-flight debrief. You get together, and while it's fresh in your mind, what worked, what didn't work, right? There are some missions where a platoon will come back and they lost someone along the way, right? That's the ultimate didn't work. But it may not have been because of an administrative or a, you know, a performance failure, right? Let, let's find out what happened. Good leaders are learners. Growing organizations are learning organizations. So what happened? share those lessons quickly with others so they don't make the mistake, same mistake. Or if something did work, ah, that's important as well. My videos aren't opening on this computer. Ah, use the Firefox web browser. This'll help you. Boy, that word spread like wildfire, right? And, uh, at the Naval Academy recently where I teach leadership. And well, while not a leadership a topic per se, it's that type of after action review after the first day of class until we all figured out a common best practice. So facilitating learning seems like a, a critical role of leaders and creating that space for that conversation to happen. Because as leaders, we can be so focused on getting things done and the next thing on our task list that we forget to slow down and make sure we learn. So well, what's your encouragement for leaders that, that maybe they aren't, they aren't great at doing that, stopping the momentum to say, let's, let's have an action after action review. What helps them to kind of build that into their routines? It starts with leaders, no matter their seniority, realizing that they need mentoring themselves. When I was a Navy captain in command of a large intelligence center in Tampa, Florida, with our central command headquarters, I had a senior admiral, longtime mentor of mine arrive, and I was so proud to show him this big command. And one of the first things he said to me, Dean, was, Paul, now that you're this senior, you'll find out you need more mentoring, not less. And at first I thought, he, he didn't hear what he just said. It's counterintuitive. No, I'm now the big man. I'm the one who dispenses the mentoring. I don't need mentoring. This was early in my command and inexperienced. 
uh, and of leading something of this size and scope. And boy, was he right, right? I had done things well, obviously, up to this point, but I had never done, I never commanded an element this huge. Officer enlisted, all services, contractor, civilian, active reserve, et cetera. And uh, I did need help, right? I had never done this specifically before. So leaders need help and they need a coach or a mentor themselves. And it doesn't necessarily need to be an outside of the office hired hand to come in and work with you. It, you could be reverse mentored, right? I was reverse mentored in this role uh, by the Air Force captain who worked in my outer office, uh, who was very kind uh, to share with me uh, his overview of my correspondence. And it wasn't for the grammar and all, I, I write fine. But sir, I, I think you're showing a little too much attitude in this letter, right? I, I'm not sure you wanna send it to the general you know, in this fashion. Uh, or you said this at the last meeting, but there's some confusion uh, amongst the department heads. Did you mean A or B? Right, you know, so it, it was a sanity check. So you can develop someone to help you with managing your time on how much time you devote to pushing away from your desk and letting people pursue additional training and education uh, or incorporating that into the daily routine. So to your original question, uh, how to, do you get there? Uh, I would uh, always share with key subordinates, ideas on how to use a couple more hours per week that I'm not going to assign you anything to do. Uh, it could range from being at home with your family, uh, you know, to taking a look at General McChrystal's latest book, which I'd highly commend uh, to you because there are some real world lessons uh, worth reading and incorporating into our daily routines here. So I never uh, told individuals what to do in terms of managing their time, but I did emphasize to them that it was important to manage their time and get away from their head down in the keyboard uh, and the day-to-day -day and think about what needs to be done and where should we be in the future. Well, that's, that's great advice because there, we're never out of stuff that is commanding our attention. And whether it's an email coming in or somebody calling us, uh, it's easy for us to be responsive to those things that are coming up. But as leaders, you're coaching to them, you need to step away. As leaders, we need to be able to, to think further out in time and just burying ourselves in the keyboard doesn't allow us to think out in time if we're going to be able to get to those objectives. You know, one of the three things you said as leaders we have to focus on is the objective and that's out in the future. As an intel officer, uh, I had two key questions that I asked myself uh, about the problem I was looking at, you know, whether it was Chinese submarines or Russian strategic bombers. After you'd get a report that something's happening, the two questions were, so what? Right, is the first one. And what's next? Right? The so what is add some context to it. 
right? Just don't tell me what happened, a common trap for junior analysts. Sir or ma'am, these Russian strategic bombers have just taken off from the Kola Peninsula and they're coming down the Atlantic corridor. Okay, so what? Uh, where do you think they're going? What do you think their mission is? When is the last time they did this? What's our defensive forces look? So what? Put it all in context. And what's next, right, for the intel analyst is the, the greatest level of that, so what? What, based on what we know, what do you think they're going to do, right? Same thing with a spreadsheet or quarterly reports or uh, customer feedback surveys. So what? And what's next? What do we do about it? This is what we need to think about, not just continue to move the data around between all these reports. So maybe a, a new competitor comes into our marketplace and somebody says, did you hear who's opening a business right in our backyard? And that's just information. And you're asking for context, right? Okay, so, so what? What does that mean to us? And, and is there anything that we need to even do about it? Is that just going to be a distraction, right? So we, we're trying to figure out how do we apply that information in a way that we can act on or, or consciously choose not to act on. Right. If someone came up to Tom McCann and said, there's a new competitor in our market space, but it sounds more like a food delivery service than a shoe company, it's, it's Zappos. And, and here's the picture of their CEO. I, really, nothing you know, serious, but you should know that they're in the marketplace. Well, uh, they didn't do their due diligence as to the so what, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And what's next? You know, how much capacity they brought in and how much in a different way of doing business in the market itself. So they failed on both counts there. And you can see where Zappos is compared to Tom McCann nowadays. Yep. We think about Blockbuster and their dismissal of Netflix. You know, that's not the business we want to be in. And we know how that story ends. And so being clear of what are the sources that we're looking to gather that type of information. And I think that's a nice segue into your experience in the intelligence world. And when we think about intelligence, you've, you've, I mean, your experience, director of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff experience and all of the work that you did in the Navy. Here's, I'm going to ask just a very basic, simple question. And that is, what is intelligence? Intelligence is finding out what the enemy doesn't want you to know. There are longer, fancier definitions, but this covers a lot of ground. And it could be military intelligence. It could be business intelligence. Coke and Pepsi, <laughs> you know, they would love to have more intelligence on each other. Now there's a process of gathering intelligence. There's stating your requirements, using technical or human means to collect it. There's the analyzing of that data perhaps with artificial intelligence and machine learning tools nowadays. Then there's disseminating that in what form, in what speed, right? Some people want it immediately. Some people want it next week as part of a larger process. And then there's the feedback and evaluation. Was it accurate? Did it work? 
Did we collect the right things? Did we analyze it correctly, et cetera? So that's the intelligence cycle, right? It starts with understanding requirements uh, and then going out, getting information, analyzing and disseminating it. Uh, so that's uh, intelligence, what it is. The, the reverse side of that is protecting what you don't want your adversary to know, right? That's uh, cybersecurity internally. It's, uh, there's a human uh, element to this as well called counterintelligence, right? If there are Chinese spies uh, in the United States, who are they, where are they, what are they trying to achieve and keeping an eye on them to thwart their efforts. That's also intelligence, but protecting and counter the, the adversary uh, compared to going out and collecting it yourself. So when we look at the building blocks of that intelligence process, what would you say the, the key lessons are for me in, you know, maybe I'm a, in a business of 20 people or maybe 2,000 people or 20,000 people. What are some of the main lessons that I can apply from that high level complex intelligence world that could make a difference in whatever situation I find myself in? Yeah, uh, a couple. First, uh, are we collecting the right things, right? And in the intelligence world, you should always consider what does your enemy want you to know, right? There's an element of deception there. So for example, in collecting something about China, right? They're a closed society. It's difficult to get a lot of information. So all of a sudden, if you start getting a lot of information on a new missile system, for example, that we hadn't gotten in the past, why is that? Do, did we have a breakthrough in our collection and analysis? Have the Chinese become careless with their safeguarding of information? Or perhaps did they deliberately leak this because it's disinformation, right? So there's some self-examination there. There's getting the big idea right of what do we need to collect? Collection is a finite effort, right? There's only so many resources and time that you can put into it. So what's more important? The, the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, the Missile Force, their Space Force, right? And how do we apportion our effort uh, against that uh, as well? So that same finite resource we would have in business in determining what's enough for us to just be informed that we need to know versus really focusing on the core of, of what we do uh, in serving our customers or wherever we find ourselves. And I, I, I like the, uh, the process there, that, that kind of intelligence loop and being able to make sure not only do we decide what is it we're looking for, but complete it with how good of a job did we do now that we know more. And effective intelligence organizations don't wait for all that information to feed back to an individual to make a decision and better corporations don't do that either, right? There's maybe centralized planning of what needs to be done, but decentralized execution, right? I'm sure uh, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson doesn't need to make every decision, right? There, there's a lot of layers that he's delegated authority 
and empowered them at the edge of their business space, wherever that is within J&J, to say, if you've got this much information, that's your call. Now, you need to feed that back to me every week, right? When we have our Monday staff meeting, I want to know what happened and what are your concerns and, uh, you know, how can we help in the future? But no, you don't need to call me to ask for permission. Let's start with me telling you, subordinate, I am empowering you to make that decision. So that'll speed the process of decision making, right? That Intel cycle, it's not always sequential. Some of it's happening simultaneously. And in the military, just like in the corporate world right now, speed is life in, in some of these decisions. When we look at those complex organizations, these large uh, hierarchical organizations that have lots of different things going on and, and so many things that we can't keep our, our fingers on, how do I as a leader best stay informed uh, without becoming then the bottleneck of being able to have an organization that takes action and is nimble? How do I, how do I stay in tune with what's really happening out there? Yeah, in the military, we call it a battle rhythm. Um, it has a corporate equivalent, although I doubt many corporations use that uh, phrasing. Uh, but it's frequent interactions. I don't want to define frequent as being once a day or once a week. Uh, every organization has you know, the right level for themselves. Uh, but it's frequent enough communication where the senior leaders can share their intent and they could get direct feedback from a wide audience, just like uh, with a wide email group. In the days before COVID, when very few people were using video teleconference, the military was using video teleconference. And it really, we really kickstarted, we, we've been using it for decades, but it really became ubiquitous across all forces after 9-11 for operations enduring freedom versus Afghanistan and Iraqi freedom uh, in th that corner of Southwest Asia. Because we were a globally distributed force and we wanted to sync ourselves uh, via video teleconference. So even though you may have been a counterterrorism element in the Philippines, you were very interested in what the other counterterrorism elements of uh, JSOC were doing in Iraq. Right, so you'd meet at a certain time at a certain rhythm where everyone could talk, right? And I, I shared this before COVID and, and after my service, and it turned into a great head start for a lot of companies who I was advising at the time that they were already up on the step before Zoom and Microsoft meetings, you know, became a commonplace. So it gets back to sharing information. And the goal at these meetings, Dean, was not for everyone to say it's Tuesday, this morning we expended this much ammunition and this many people are on uh, lead. No, it wasn't that type of administrative what we're doing. It was substantive of these are the big issues we're dealing with and we could use some help in this area. Is there anyone on the net that has some experience with this, right? And at the time, 2001 through 2004, after right, uh, Iraqi freedom, it was so new and eye-opening and so 
productive, right, that other branches of the conventional military started using it. It started with special operations forces, but others picked up on it and it became an invaluable command and control tool. And it became an inclusivity tool. It brought junior people into the room with senior people. And sometimes, back to the reverse mentoring, the junior people had just as good, if not better, ideas than some of the senior people uh, on some of these things. Uh, so if the admiral or the general asked, does anyone have a response to this question? And you'd hear, hey, sir, chiming in from Jakarta, Indonesia, here, Steve Smith. Steve, thank you for that. Very useful, right? So there was immediate feedback. The organization saw how the leaders responded to input from the juniors. Uh, it made the juniors feel like they were really contributing in an important way to the outcome. And that's what drives a positive command climate. It's not more free gummy bears and bouncy chairs, you know, uh, in the office space. Uh, it's, do they value my input? <laughs> and if the answer is yes, that increases retention and quality of life and the motivation for people not to work harder, back to tenacity, but to work smarter, you know, and to work uh, with a little more spring in their step. Mm -hmm. uh, by the same token, another tactical example of that, emails. Dean, how many times have you prepared an email for someone that you've worked for or with, and you really worked hard on the email, you spell check it, you grammar check it, you, you think through it, it's a good looking email, it answers what they wanted to know. And for hours or maybe a day or two, you don't hear anything back at all. How demotivating is that to you? Or almost as demotivating would be when you get back a response some hours or a day later, thanks, or okay. How motivated are you to put that level of effort into writing that person the same uh, type of response next time? Not very, right? Right. The lesson is don't put the energy in because you're not going to get the energy back. Yeah. Now, if you got back the response from someone that said, Dean, thanks. This is really helpful. I'm including some other people on the CC to show them this good work. I've timed that out. That's about six seconds to type out a blast like that. Now, of course, it's predicated on reading whatever the content is. So it may be another 30 seconds, you know, or a minute. But think how motivated you are and think how the organization sees that you, boss man, you value other people's inputs, you're giving them credit, and it makes people want to contribute. So this gets back to your core question. I just took the long way around to get there. Uh, you know, how do you improve the participation, the inclusivity uh, of these type of efforts? Yeah, that's excellent example. And wise for us as leaders to be able to step back and consider how are we communicating? What's the environment that we're creating to allow that communication to happen? And every time we respond, every time we open up the floor, every time we ask somebody a question, we are teaching our organization how we communicate here 
and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And that's a tremendous responsibility that we have as leaders every time we communicate. Paul, as we kind of bring the pieces together here, you've seen leadership in so many facets, in so many situations, and you see leaders grow and flourish and uh, face challenges and help their teams overcome challenges. Is there one thing that, you know, whether it's you consistently coach leaders on or it's a message that you, that you really want leaders to understand that, that you would like to share uh, with the audience here before we wrap up? Thanks. Yes. And the answer is teamwork, tone, tenacity. Now that's convenient that it's my brand, but I've studied leaders for 20 plus years. I've kept my notes and I've long thought about what's the difference between the best of them, the average of them and the world-class idiots uh, amongst them. And there were some of those as well. While these are umbrella terms, the greatest leaders or the greatest teams, the greatest high-performing effective teams that I saw, they had these three characteristics. Teamwork, tone, tenacity. I'll be more specific. Uh, when it comes uh, to teamwork, right? these leaders knew how to build relationships. It's an overlooked responsibility of a leader that it's one of their primary roles is to build relationships. Typically only they can do both down and in the organization and up and out side the organization. The goal is not the number of contacts or the number of uh, LinkedIn looks uh, that you get. The goal is that relationships buy you trust because when you disagree with someone professionally, if you already trust them, you're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. So it doesn't devolve into a divisive discourse. Look at our current political situation in the United States, right? Uh, I think there's a lack of relationships and there's a resultant lack of trust. So not much gets done. It's not a high performing organization. That's not a political statement from one side or the other, just an observation. Uh, and then the byproduct of trust, if you get there, is loyalty. And the absolute highest performing teams I ever uh, was part of or that I admired from afar were the ones that were loyal to each other. Read almost any Medal of Honor citation. It wasn't about bravado and trying to advance on the enemy, although there were elements of that in there. It was about loyalty to one's comrades in arms around them, falling on a grenade, going in there to rescue someone, right? Fighting until they fainted, knowing that they had to protect, you know, people or a platform behind them. That's loyalty, right? That's the, the highest level of teamwork, but it all starts with relationships, right? Then there's tone, right? It could also be called in the military command climate, or the, uh, the culture or the atmosphere uh, of an organization. These are places where people wanted to come to work every day. But how do you get there? Well, we talked about inclusivity and people understanding uh, what the mission is, right? That, that generates buy-in. There's a language of leadership that comes along with that, right? Leaders uh, that build up good tone, they don't use I and me, right? 
they don't even use your, they drop the Y, they just get to our, right? Our mission, <laughs> not your task, but our task, right? Because I'm responsible and accountable. It's your action, but it's coming back to me uh, if there's a failure and I've got you back, right? It's someone who walks around in an organization and asks, how are you doing? And they don't leave till you tell them. I mean, they mean it, right? Not the New York, how you doing, right? This is the, no, really, ha Paul, how's your wife, Kim, this week? Hey, it's your birthday today, I noticed, you know, on the roster. Uh, there are a lot of different things you could be doing that you're here working on your birthday says a lot about you and how much we value you, thanks. Boy, I wanna come back and work with this person, right? I don't care how many free gummy bears, you know, they put out there on the snack counter. So uh, the best thing to do there as a leader is to be a person of integrity. And when I say that, I mean, make sure that your actions and your principles match, right? If you say something, make sure your actions match them. If there's a disconnect, right? If there's some cognitive dissonance between them, your subordinates will know. Uh, it's my experience that subordinates will forgive any boss if they make a mistake, as long as the boss is sincere, contrite, admits their error, and tries to do better next time. Now, if they do it 17 times in a row, they're going to question their competence and they'll probably lose them, right? But if it happens on occasion, right? They'll forgive you if you make a mistake. They won't forgive you if you're a phony, right? And you'll be found out. One thing, especially in the military, one thing any service member knows is that the junior sailor, soldiers, airmen, Marines, they know how to detect a phony pretty quick. <laughs> and, then the, and then there's the tenacity, that perseverance with a purpose, right? And it doesn't need to be a physical tough person. It does need to be a mental tough person. Doesn't need to be a senior person, could be a junior person, right? The most tenacious people I worked with in Afghanistan, for example, was a five foot one Air Force uh, female colonel uh, and uh, a, a Navy Master Chief Petty Officer, you know, way junior in rank to uh, senior officers, and the other one not necessarily physically imposing, but she was like the chicken hawk in those old foghorn leghorn cartoons, and she would not accept no for an answer. For the record, nothing ever illegal, immoral, or unethical, but she would not give up until the objective was achieved, and she was an inspiration to us all. That's excellent. This has been a fascinating conversation, Paul, and I so appreciate you sharing the experiences and the perspective that you have on leadership and how we communicate as leaders. You know, today we've had Paul Becker, a retired rear admiral in the Navy. Paul, with your Becker T3 group, tell us, you know, if people want to learn more about the work you do, the things you've got going on, how can they, how can they learn more or, or stay in touch with you? Thanks, Dean. I have a passion for helping others improve their personal or their organizational performance. So they could find me on the web at the Becker T3 group, all one word, .com. And there's a website with plenty of information to include my blog that covers a lot of motivational and inspirational teamwork tone tenacity stories from real life. 
I'm on Twitter at Becker T3 Group and also on LinkedIn, uh, Paul Becker T3 Group, and uh, you'll be able to find my extensive publications there. Excellent. And I'll have links to those sites in the show notes. And uh, Paul Becker, thank you so much again for joining us today and sharing your experiences and uh, wishing you all of the best in, in the work that you're doing. Thank you, Dean. I'm a big fan of Claris, and uh, I'm glad we've met via the C-Suite Executive Network. I look forward to more work with you. Thank you, Paul.